All right, join me then. And we are in Psalm 139. This is a mild diversion from Exodus. We had started Exodus, but when we hit Exodus 3, we encountered the God who is the I Am, the I Am who is I Am. And as we've encountered that name, trying to get a grip on who this God is, who Yahweh is, we've been meditating on that. We looked last week at Acts 17 and at Isaiah 45, because He is the God who has life in and of Himself. This morning, we're going to see some great doctrines about our God, that He is the all-wise one, and He is the all-present one, and He is the all-powerful one, and what that means for our life. And there are comparatively very small, but there are powerful or notable people in our world, and they're usually seen as very important people, very busy people. They are just some persons in this world that are just so important, you would never ever get the time of day from them. And for one, we prayed for him, but let's use the example of the President of the United States. What would it take to, for you personally, as an individual, to get a meeting with the President? I mean, maybe if you were in the right place, you might get the chance to shake his hand at some campaign stop or maybe make eye contact with him at a speech or, again, on the campaign road upcoming. But I'm talking about getting to sit with him and talk with him and share your thoughts and hear his back and forth. I mean, what's the opportunity for that? I just say, forget about it. That's a dream. I mean, imagine trying to email whitehouse.gov. I would like to meet with the president. I am not pleased with inflation. I'm sure he'd be dying to meet with you. Or what about even our own senators over our state or the governor even? Or really just even your house reps. What does it take to get to meet with these really important, significant people? I mean, maybe if they're very local and they're up for an election and they need your vote, you might get to connect with one of your more local politicians. But the bigwigs out there, the really important people, so-called, they just don't have time to meet and hear from everyone, even if we assume the best that they wanted to. They don't have time for the little people very often. Well, would it not be easy to project that same kind of mentality to the very King of kings, the Lord of lords? It's interesting, over the past couple of weeks, we've said time and again that God doesn't need you. He doesn't. You can't add anything to God. He's f- perfect and fulfilled in Himself. You can't offer Him anything. Anything you try and offer Him... He already has it. He's even sustaining your life and breath. You can't give Him anything. He doesn't need you. Now, that kind of hurts a bit, I think. We want to be needed. We want to know we have a place. Imagine if your spouse told you to your face, I don't need you, and turned on their heels and walked away. It would be crushing. Should we not then? be saddened by God to hear that He doesn't need us? And again, we can't offer Him anything, anything we would have from Him. They're already His anyway. Why should He even give us the time of day? He's too important, let alone, isn't He busy? How many other billions of people is He keeping track of? He doesn't have time for me and my little problems. At least He shouldn't. But God is not man. He's far different than that, far more glorious. 
As we come and meditate through Psalm 139 this morning, I want you to marvel. I want you to marvel that the infinite God, the great I Am, who has no limits on His capacities, cares about little finite you. He cares for you. This is not an overstatement. This isn't sentimental jargon. This is truth and reality that David illustrates for us here. He cares for you more than you could possibly imagine. And that's true even through the trials you're walking through. He cares for you more than you can imagine. And the result is then that comes to us, our allegiance to Him must too be without limit. Must be total, inside and out. And we'll see this come for us in a few ways, and we'll begin here. It's this, we see about our God, there's no limit to what He knows. And so that means as it applies to us, He knows you quite personally. Verses 1 to 6. The doctrine that David opens with here is of what we call God's omniscience. That means He's all-knowing. He knows everything. But that too means He doesn't, that's not just a truth out there that He knows everything about all creation or whatever could be, but He also knows you as an individual very personally and intimately. Now, that truth might be very frightening for some to think about this morning. And yet, for David, it proves a particular comfort. And we suspect, as we've read through this psalm already, that David was in need of some real comfort or reassurance at this time in his life. And we gather that as we look at, in particular, verses 19 to 22 of Psalm 139. You know, as you read through this psalm, this is the paragraph or stanza, verses 19 to 22, that very much rings the bell, which of these is not like the other one, right? It seems very strange. You have all of these great thoughts about God, about how He cares for us, and to then suddenly turn and say, oh, that you would slay the wicked. I didn't see that coming. What gives, Dave? What happened? It's like he went to bed at verse 18, all happy in God, and then got up on the wrong side of the bed in the morning and wrote verse 19. Didn't get his coffee yet, and he started writing the psalm. That's not a good idea. Of course, this is not what happened, because he had his coffee, I'm sure. But still, verses 19 to 22, they're quite a jarring contrast, aren't they, to the whole rest of the psalm's mood. And what accounts for this if it wasn't a bad night's sleep? Well, in verse 19, what does he talk about? He talks about men of bloodshed. The idea is, is that people are out to kill David. He's having a bad day. People are out to get him. They want him dead, and unjustly so. He's written many of the Psalms under cases like this, where whether he's fleeing murderers or insurrectionists trying to usurp his kingdom, of course, things perhaps most dire when he's fleeing from King Saul in Israel, and maybe that's the very occasion here. He seems to be very near death. But then we connect this to our own lives. This much is clear. When you're on the run, Okay? When things are going quite wrong in your life, people are out to get you, they're out to slander you, they're blaming you. Or things are just not turning out as you want, and this seems like dire. It looks like the the whole light in the world is dimming. Things are looking dark. We let our circumstances or or whatever the temptation or big thing in our life, it starts to eclipse the face of God, right? We've talked about this. Our lives, the things going on in our life or the people in our life, they become much bigger than God is, and they eclipse it. We can't see Him anymore. That seems to be what David is feeling. 
Yet, into that hopelessness, into that temptation and challenge, what does David do? He brings to mind the truth, the character of God. And that's what he does for us in this psalm. And the first truth he comes to is, as it opens, that God is all-knowing. He's omniscient. And that means He even knows me. Verses 1 to 6. God knows everything. And that means He knows me. And more than that, I'm not an abstract idea to Him, but He cares about me quite personally, even more than I know myself. Let's see where He begins. Verse 1. Notice the way it begins, O Lord. That's all caps in your English Bible. That stands for Yahweh, the name of God, the great I Am that we've been studying in Exodus. Yahweh, you have searched me and known me. Now, that's an interesting thing to say, David, if we get really technical about it. Because if God knows everything, He can't learn anything, you see. He already knows it all. His knowledge is absolute, even towards you. That means He knows you. And to illustrate that, David describes it as if God searched every part of you and collected all the information and He put you back together to know you. You know, somebody might be in our house, one of our kids or something like that, and they're looking for something, looking for some long-lost item. And it's one maybe we've put away, and often we put such things away in the garage. So they'll ask, where is this thing? And we'll tell them, oh, it's in the garage. Well, where's the so-and-so forth? Of course, well, it's in the garage. Well, what about the... It's in the garage. And then they come back from the garage, not finding the thing, of course. And then they have to ask, but where in the garage? And that's where I say, nothing. (laughs) It's there somewhere, I think. Until I go out and clean the garage and order everything in the garage... Until I do that, I only have a general notion of whatever might be in my garage. And actually, when you go and then clean out and particularize every piece of your garage, you might be surprised what you find there. You might find some gross dead things. You might find some things you forgot you had. You might find things and you think, I never had that. Sometimes our hearts like that garage. We have a general idea of what's going on in our heart, what's there. But it's been a while since we've really taken stock, reorganized, really examined our hearts. Well, God already knows. It's as if He searched and reorganized your whole heart. He can tell you right where that wrench is that you're looking for. From here, he goes verses 2 to 4. David explores more, the various ways that God knows him. First of all, God knows David's schedule and activities down to the precise moment. Verse 2, the first part, you know when I sit down, when I rise up. Might I ask, when did you go to bed last night? Some of you too late, you're yawning. Maybe you don't remember. When did you get up? Your second hour people, you might not know when you get up because you didn't bother setting your alarm. What did you do yesterday? Do you have to think about it? God doesn't. He knows it precisely, perfectly. He doesn't forget. He tracked and knows remembers precisely all that you did yesterday and the day before that and the day before that, down to every moment. He knows even the thoughts that came to your mind yesterday. He knows what you're thinking right now. Verse 2, the second half, you discern my thoughts from afar. 
Does your spouse or your child ever give you that strange face and you're so desperate to know, what are you thinking? What's going on behind that face, that mind, that puzzled look? God never has to ask. He always knows. And He even knows it from afar. As we've said, David goes on to describe, He knows our days in every detail. Verse 3, You search out my path, my lying down, and are acquainted with all my ways. The picture of this expression, you searched out my path, it's as if he's taking a tape measure and taking down every step we take. How big the step was, how long was the stride, and where did they go? Today we have these cell phones and pedometers, and we got our Fitbits tracking the number of steps. And we can be quite surprised about, well, how many did I take today? How many did I not take today? Well, God's been doing that, measuring it off every step you've taken for your whole life since you've been born. And He remembers them all. To think of smartphones, it seems like sometimes smartphones, they read our minds, doesn't it? Siri's listening right now, I'm pretty sure. How do I know? I'm going to go on Amazon and I'm going to have all of these Fitbits suggested to me that I should purchase. But God doesn't merely read our thoughts. He knows our thoughts before we know them. Look at verse 4. Before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. Oh, this is humbling. It's humbling because if you have grown enough to exercise a little bit of self-control, you've learned the lesson of not letting what goes into your mind come straight out of your mouth. You learn to have a filter and to shut your mouth. Well, God knows what's behind the filter. And again, this can be a terrifying thing to think of it, that by such knowledge as God accumulates all of this, He is too our judge. And we appear before Him, so to speak, naked with all of the information that He could use, certainly against us. He could condemn us for every idle word, deed, or thought. And yet... This kind of absolute knowledge, God's omniscience, doesn't scare David. Rather, it proves a comfort to him. Why? David knows about God's abounding mercy to him, and we know it in Christ. Look at verses 5 and 6. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Now, that can sound rather threatening, I think. But that's not the intention, as it's indicated even by verse 6. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. I can't understand this. It is so marvelous. Because you see, this notion that God lays His hand on us, it's not like He has captured us. He's snatching you. He's laying His hand on you to punish you. No, the picture is He's laying His hand on us to guide us, to comfort us, to lead us, despite, despite, get this, all of the faults He knows about us. Faults we've been trying to hide from others and ourselves. He lays His hands on us to comfort us, to calm us in our anxious thoughts, to reassure us and guide us when we're confused, frustrated. Have you felt that? I don't even understand myself. Oh God, mercifully work here. I don't know what to do. I don't understand what's best. He knows. He understands. He even understands your inability to understand and has mercy for you there. 
to then put out his hand, so to speak, to you and to say, I get it. Trust me. I'll understand for you. Keep looking to me. Furthermore, there's no limit to where God is, this God, which also means then, comfortingly, He's with us continually. Look at verses 7 to 12. This is the teaching that God is omnipresent, that He's everywhere present. And David illustrates us illustrates this to us in this psalm in a few scenarios to show us what this is like. In other words, where can you try and escape from God? Where can you run? Where can you lose God's notice? There's nowhere you can run. There's nowhere you can go. He's always there wherever you go. Verse 7, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? And the answer is, there's nowhere. No matter how high you go or how deep you dig, God's still there. Verse 8, if I ascend to heaven, of course, you're there. If I make a bed in Sheol, you're there. You know, if a, God, if a dog was chasing you, you might climb a tree to avoid him. Or if there were birds swooping down at you, you may, perhaps you could try and dig a hole or get into a cave to escape them. But not God. He's still there. Always. No height is high enough, no depth is low enough to escape the omnipresent God. Nor can you flee from Him in any direction, to the east or the west. Look at verse 9. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea... Now, what does he mean here? Well, go back to David. He lived in Israel. And think about... Israel's geography, where it was located in the world, and still is. Or think of that map in the back of your Bible about Israel. Think of the land of Israel for a moment and think off to the east. If you were in Jerusalem, one of the higher parts of that land, you could look off to the east for a long, long way. And when the sun finally rises, the wings of the dawn, when the dawn comes, there's that first blip of light as the sun crests the highest hill in the distance, the far-off eastern horizon. Or, think about it the other direction, move west. Where are you at in Israel as you look off to the west? If you were on the shore of the boundaries of the land, you'd be looking out right into the Mediterranean Sea, as far as the eye could see. And as the sun is going down, there's that last little, like, flash, right, in the farthest distance before it plunges down. So if you could run and be carried by eagles' wings, fly, eagles, fly, or at least try to, to the farthest off horizon. What are you going to find there? You know what you're going to find? Even if you find nothing else, God is already there. He's present everywhere. And again, that can seem like a very scary thing if you're trying to run away from God. Think about Jonah. But you will never be able to escape him. He'll always find you. And more than that, wherever you were trying to hide, imagine digging the deepest hole. You dig in there and you get in and then you hear, boo, God's already there waiting for you. You can't possibly hide from Him. And note that He doesn't even have to try and find you. 
He already sees you. He already knows. He's already like the, he's already right there. Like the police might be there banging on your door trying to get you, but God's already in the room. He's already in your head. You cannot escape him. And if God was out to get you, that is a terrifying thing. But if you have taken shelter in his son, he's not out to get you. If you are hiding in the death of Christ for your sins, if you're hiding in his perfect righteous life lived on your behalf, as he is with you, it's not to judge. His displeasure and the justice has been satisfied at the cross. That means he's now for you. And so David, sensing God's promise and that God is for him, he's not scared of the omnipresent God. Rather, he's comforted by it. If David were even driven to the highest high or the lowest low or the farthest far, he says in verse 10, even there shall your hand lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Where? Everywhere. The farthest place you could be driven. God is there ready to bless, to lead, to guide, to comfort with his right hand of favor. And that way we are never lost in Christ. He's never lost to us. He never abandons us or leaves us. He always knows where we are because He's always there right there with us. I'm not sure about you, but I've become so dependent on these phones and GPS devices. And I can't say I'm only dependent on them on a long road trip, sadly. I need GPS to venture out of Midlothian. My navigation security blanket is what it should be called. And it gets exposed for me how dependent I am. One, when I'm like, where is the closest post office? Do I turn left or right on the Lothian Turnpike? I don't remember. I've honestly put that in my phone. It's like a mile away. And I've been there countless times. But then my signal's bad. My phone's messed up. It's on the fritz. I'm out of battery, whatever. I start getting apprehensive. I'm like lost because I've lost my tether to the satellites. They don't know where I am. This is bad. They can't tell me how to get anywhere. Well, God never loses track of us. He never loses our signal. We might not sense His signal, but He never loses us. He's actually all right there with us. What a comfort that is. And that's true when things in our lives, especially when they get very, very dark, and we feel most alone. Look at verse 11. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night. Whoa. That's when things get pretty bad. When the one light or hope or guide in your life, it starts going out, and things go dark. You ever felt like that? like that the light around you where you're hoping for encouragement, help, and hope, it goes dark? Can you feel more alone than that? I think David captures it well with this expression when he says, surely the darkness shall cover me. That would normally be translated the darkness that bruises me. It's a kind of crushing darkness, a suffocating darkness. When grief overwhelms, hope is extinguished. When you say, that is, you feel like darkness is winning the day. 
Well, into that thought, what does David do? He remembers his God. Look at verse 12. But even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as day, for darkness is as light to you, because he is the source of light. He's the source of it all. He still sees. He's still there, no matter how black and strong and bruising the darkness feels. He still cares. And the darkness doesn't bother him at all. It doesn't scare him. He's not encumbered by it. He sees all perfectly. He's always right there. And he will not, and we know this, he has not in Christ. He will not abandon us. And we know this because of the promise of his word, not how we feel. We might feel like, we might say the darkness is coming to take us. But we know in Christ, like Hebrews 13 verse 5 is promised, be content with what you have, it says, for he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. And he has not, even when the darkest darkness weighs down. You can't run from God. You can't hide from this God. But if you are reconciled and you're at peace with this God through Christ, why would you ever want to run from Him? But what if people are driving you away from Him? What if your enemies are trying to chase you away? Or what if it's your sins, they come haunting to you? The accuser comes to remind you how dark inside you are, the sin that's with you and dogging you, and whispers lies to you like God can't be near one like you. But who is our God, and what has He done on the cross? Because He is with us. The gospel has said so. The death of Christ has purchased it, has given us His Spirit, and He will never leave. Even when it feels so dark, there's a light of His face in the gospel, and we must keep our eyes fixed right there. There's also no limit to what this God can do, the infinite God. And as that truth out there gets applied to us, that means He made us, makes you very carefully, intimately, personally. Verses 13 to 18. Here, David reflects on the doctrine of God's omnipotence, that He has all power. He's the Almighty. But again, that's not an abstract truth out there, a doctrine just to be dissected and described. It's a truth for His very heart, for it means that the Almighty cares for me, made me, and knows me. Let's see this, verse 13. For God in His creation, He goes back to applying it to us, the very beginning of us. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Just how beautiful that picture is. How personal it is. You formed my inward parts. You knit me together. That expression, knit, I mean, it's what it is. It's a weaving. It captures how intimate and how close and personal God is as He creates every single person right in their mother's tummy. It expresses the kind of care our Creator has toward us. You know, we have one particular large woven throw or blanket that sits on our bed at home, and it's beautiful just in its own right. It's immaculately done. It would be a very pricey item if you went to the store to try and buy it. 
And it was given to us as a gift, so it has value in that. But its value is far more than its price tag with whatever that might have been. Because it wasn't purchased from a store. It was knit or sewn and crocheted by hand from care and love that also said, I pray for you and your family with every stitch of this blanket. And God weaves every person just like that. That's an individual, personal creation and love. Every person in the womb, at any gestation period, is the personal creation of our God. Understand, He didn't, this is not the deistic kind of God we might have heard from some of our forefathers of this nation. He didn't make you merely by setting in motion like a stack of dominoes in a process. No, He personally created you. Again, the contrast. This is not like some generic mass-produced car. Remember car dealerships when they had cars? You'd go by and you'd see all of these identical shiny cars. And if you wanted a special one, you had to special order it with your particular details. We are much more like the specially ordered and intricately made weaved car, if we can say it that way. Each one of us at conception made by God, woven by God into His very image. Such we get from that, of course, every human in the womb must be protected and preserved. Now, it's true, in this sane, sin-tainted world, that means, one, not every baby is going to be a healthy baby. But one's relative health or mental capacity, says nothing about whether or not they are a special creation of God. More than this, that they are in God's image, for they are. So they must be not harmed, nor killed, nor maimed, or ignored. Their lives matter. Why? Because they matter to God. He made each one of them. But then, too, in this sin-tinted world, or excuse me, sin-tinted world, death infects it all. And so, Horribly, some babies will gestate in the wrong places in mommy, in places that would kill mommy if the baby grew full term. And there, as pro-life Christians have said, we should save the life of the mother while we can before both precious lives are lost. Even there, though, it's still a loss. It still hurts. We're not talking about mental health of the mother here. We're not talking about advancing someone's career by getting the baby out of the way. We're talking about literal life and death. That might be the only exception. And thankfully, those cases are quite medically rare in our day, especially by comparison to the vast numbers of literally the hundreds of thousands, over half a million babies aborted in our country every year, even still. That's murder. That's evil. That's wrong. And it destroys something God made for Himself. So, oh God, Holy Spirit, give us as your church such hearts of compassion and wisdom and how we can help these mothers carry these babies and do what we can to help their children. Because understand, each one of those children are crafted in the womb by God to magnify and praise Him. Look at verse 14. I praise you. For I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. And praise God, we live in an age that 
perhaps better than any other, as we get to peer into the womb like no civilization has to see the life that God is designing and making, even in 3D, which admittedly, it's kind of weird, but it is beautiful because it's incredible how right away you can see this, this life, this image bearer of God. It's incredible. And, and understandably so, it's been such an effective deterrent so many times for those women considering abortion just to see their baby's face, to feel their baby move, to see it happen on a screen, to hear just even the heartbeat. And understand then, conversely, what an evil it is that some are trying to pass laws to prohibit that. Why? Because they know when you see that life that God has made, you won't abort it. We are fearfully and wonderfully made right at conception, right at the womb. And even those who are trying to kill it know it, or they try and suppress it. Look at verse 15. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. As he continues, not only did the Creator make us from the beginning, but He's charted out every day of our life, every moment of our life before we have ever lived it. He has written all of our days from womb to tomb right in His hands. And again, to this, even as David's being pursued, as he's on the run, as people are out to get him, what can David say to a God like this? Verse 17 and 18. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I could count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. He is just floored by trying to consider this infinite God and his puny, finite mind. A God whose own thoughts are so numerous, so multiplied, so weighty, they're entirely past finding out. He'd be better off trying to go to the beach and count all of the sand there. It's impossible. The infinite God of infinite knowledge totally expands and blows beyond all barriers of our imagination. We just have to join the Apostle Paul in that dumbfounded praise almost. Romans 11, verse 33. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. How inscrutable His ways. No matter how far you go, how much you trace them, how much you think about it, you'll never even come close to the full mind of God. How infinite He is. And yet so how intimate He is. From those in his creation, the 200 billion trillion flaming stars in the sky burning over an expanse of 94 billion light years, and then the same very power that makes a little baby. Who is this God? What is man that you are mindful of him? And yet, as David applies these truths, what is this man? What is that man and woman and child that God, that God thinks of us? Who is like our God? Well, there is none. 
And that means, too, then, that there's no limit to what He could ask of us. For He calls you entirely. He calls for all of you. That is, as David turns here in verse 19, he turns to the so what. How do we respond to a God like this? The unlimited God, the omniscient God, the omnipresent God, the omnipotent God. Well, when we see a God so great like that, and we see that He's all in for us, knowing us intimately, then the call is for us, how can we be but all in for Him, heart and soul? And that's what we find in these, especially at first glance, admittedly, troubling verses. But what's clear of these, from these verses is this, David sides with God against all others. And as it begins, David cries out for justice here in verse 19, justice upon God's enemies. Here we read, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Again, for one, he sees in God that's so committed, he's so merciful, he's so powerful, and he's so good. David cannot tolerate for a moment that that one would be slandered or ignored or mocked or abused. It pains his heart. You think of Jesus when he went to the temple. Overcome, throwing over the tables. Or as we saw last week, we saw Paul on Mars Hill. Just overcome by all of the idolatry in Athens. He had to speak up. Well, here it is for David. He will stand with God, even if it means he must stand against the world. Verse 21. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. That sounds a bit harsh, doesn't it? Sounds very Old Testament. But honestly, what's the alternative? To love evil? To tolerate evil? To tacitly condone evil by not speaking against it? Rather, in the New Testament, Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 9, Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. We don't do well to confuse those categories. We're supposed to hate evil. We should hate the things that God hates. Why? Because they're evil, they are wrong, they are horrible. Now, just because we have great zeal and we hate evil, that doesn't mean we get to do evil in return, does it? That's the great error, one among many, say those who took up violence even against abortion clinics in the past and abortion doctors. Those doctors are not right to murder. That is evil. That is wrong. But nor is it right to bomb their facilities or murder them in return. That justice and judgment is not our place, especially in this age, in this kingdom. Rather, what is our place? We are to preach the gospel, the good news of God. And actually, our message is a call, a merciful call to the abortion doctors and to the evil persons, to the prostitutes, to the druggies, to the self-righteous church kid, and to the moral Mormon next door. We call and say, there's a God of compassion, and He knows you, and He calls you. He'll forgive you. Come to His Son. What is our zeal to do? Hold out Christ for them. For even as Paul says in 2 Timothy, the unbeliever... Even the one persecuting us, that's not our enemy. Rather, they have just been energized or, in Paul's words, made captive 
by the evil one to do his will. And if anything, that kind of thought, I think, provides all the more hatred for evil, to see how it corrupts, it blinds the heart, blinding people in their sin. And so we must hate evil in all its forms. We must stand and make war against evil as the enemy. This is part of what it means to be the friend of God. But two, that means, as we look to the conclusion of this psalm, we not only hate evil out there, but we hate it too right in here. And that's where we start. Right in our own heart. Verse 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. In other words, O God, mercifully leverage all of that wisdom that you have about me. See, God knows all your blind spots. He knows all your excuses before you make them. He knows how bad they are. He knows all of your sins and all of your faulty desires. He calls down again, O God, mercifully leverage that full presence you have right within me. And if you're in Christ, He lives in you by His Spirit. So we're calling, oh God, change us. Change my desires. Cause me to walk in obedience to you. Oh God, mercifully leverage all of that power to create in me new life, a new heart, new actions, new desires. Make me clean and lead me in repentance in the everlasting way. In other words, David's war on sin and evil started right in his heart, and he calls God to arms with him to fight the fight to lead him in life. That's our prayer in view of all of this, is to surely to the great I am, the infinite God, the God of no limits. He is the one who can do this. And so we pray, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. But isn't that a terrifying thing to pray? It's a prayer to be exposed fully. That He would expose all of your faults, all of your shortcomings, all the ways you fall short. Don't we spend most of our days trying to forget or ignore those, lest shame overwhelms us? And then to go under the all-knowing eye of God? I don't know about that. And yet David does so in hope here. Why? Because he's not threatened by God, even though God knows everything about him. He's not worried, even though God is been with David every step of the way in his life, being wherever he's been. Nor is David worried about God's power, though we're talking about the Almighty. And why not? Because he knows this God is infinitely powerful, infinitely majestic, has infinite care for him, which means, too, he is infinitely merciful. That this God, and we know it best in Christ, leverages all that wisdom, all that closeness, all that knowledge, and all that power, but to save and mercifully redeem. He is not limited in His power to save. 
He is not limited in his wisdom on how to save us. The cross solved that. He is not limited either in space and time, when and where to save us. He does it by the preaching of the gospel. He has no limits, and he will and has by Christ's death and resurrection defy all those limits to save any sinner that looks to him. He is not limited either in his grace. The great Puritan Dr. John Owen put it like this. Now, before I give you the quote, this is John Owen. He says nothing short, nor very briefly. So this is time. You're at the home stretch. Sit up real quick and listen. Dr. Owen, he said, If there be any pardon with God, it is a forgiveness that fits God to give. If our God is the omnipotent, omniscient, all-powerful God, and He's set to forgive, what kind of forgiveness can He give? All right, back to Owen. When God pardons, He will abundantly pardon. So go away with your half-forgiveness, limited and conditional pardons with reserves and limitations, for this God is absolute and perfect before whom our sins are with God's whole heart in love cast into the depths of the sea as an emblem, Owen notes, of infinite mercy. God has purposed over history to His exalt His infinitude that He is so different from us and He's going to show that in one way most supremely that He's infinite in His mercy to every sinner that looks to Him in Christ. So we can say, oh yes, search me, O oh God. Expose my sins. Because I know no matter how many you find, Christ can and has taken care of them all. None of them are too strong for you. None of them put any limit on you. And so from there, may I then walk in the everlasting way in repentance for the glory of the infinite, the risen I am, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together.